Well, I hope everybody is having a good week. Uh, I want to give a brief advertisement. Now, now, ladies, you can tune out for a minute. This is for the fellas. Saturday is our men's breakfast, and, uh, and I hope you're going to be there. So it's been advertised for several weeks. We're going to be talking about uh, what it means to be men who are pursuing holiness and how our pursuit of holiness uh, benefits those who are around us. And so uh, if, you're not, if, if you're not signed up yet, I want to encourage you to, uh, to be a part of that event on Saturday morning. This evening, our topic is going to be the names of God. And so by way of reminder, uh, what we're doing this spring, uh, this is, I think, the third time. There'll be about four times uh, over this period that Pastor Josh is not here and I'm filling in. And, and he asked, instead of jumping into that Exodus series and stealing his thunder, that, uh, that instead we just do some different topics that might be of interest as kind of a foretaste of the sort of topics uh, that we'll be talking about when we launch the Taylor's Institute next fall. So our topic tonight is the names of God. Now you can learn a lot about somebody or his or her background uh, based on the names that their parents gave them, right? It's not always foolproof, but you can often learn things. Let me give you some examples. If a kid has the same name as one of his parents or a grandparent, that tells you something about that kid, right? He's a junior, or she's named for her grandma. And, uh, and many of us name our children after family members as a way to perpetuate those family names. Our oldest son his name is Baxter Robert Finn. He's named for two of his grandfathers, uh, one on, or two of my grandfathers and Leah's grandfather, his great-grandfathers on each side of the family. So that's one way that we learn about people based on their names. But there's others as well. Uh, you might have been born in the South if you go by two names instead of one name. Have you ever met a uh, Mary Grace or a Sue Ellen or a Joe Frank? They're probably not from Boston. They're probably from the South. Or here's another one. You might be the child of a minister if you're named for a preacher, a missionary, or a theologian. When I, whenever I meet a John Wesley or a Martin Luther, I mean, more than likely, daddy or granddaddy was a preacher or a missionary. Uh, again, I use the example of our son, uh, Baxter Robert. Now, I just told you that Baxter was named after uh, one of our grandparents, actually Leah's grandfather. There's also a famous Puritan theologian named Richard Baxter. Have you ever heard his name before? So Richard Baxter, whenever we named Baxter, all of my students at the seminary wanted to know, did you name him after Richard Baxter? And I said, of course not. What sort of nerd do you think I am? He's, he's, it's a family name. I wouldn't do something like that. Well, it turns out Baxter was with the Lord. Grandpa Baxter was with the Lord by then, but his widow, Wanda, was still with us at the time. And about four to six weeks after Baxter was born, we took him to meet his great-grandmother, Wanda. And she was holding him and talking about how pretty he was, because he was really pretty. And, uh, and then she said, Did I ever tell you how granddaddy was named after some old Puritan preacher? 
So, uh, so it, it did get to us after all. We just didn't realize it whenever we did it. Or here's another one. You might be the child of homeschooling parents. Someone's already laughing. I haven't even gotten to the punchline. If, you're, uh, if, if your kid's first name is a Greek or Hebrew word, have you met a little Aletheia or a Charis? It's probably a homeschooling parent. Now, I can make that joke because I'm a homeschooling parent. But you see that sometimes. Or you might be the child of a celebrity if your name is a word that is normally not a name. I had to go to a website to, to find some of these. These are some of my favorites. Apple, Bear, Sparrow, Phoenix. These are not human names. But that's what celebrities name their kids. Okay, I've got one more. This is my all-time favorite name from church history. He was a, uh, he was a Puritan in England. He was a member of Parliament. His name was, praise God, one word, praise God, bare bones. <laughs> he had a brother. His brother's name, this is one word, hyphens, big compound word, Repent, lest ye be damned, bare bones. His nickname in Parliament was Damned Bare Bones. So you can tell a lot about somebody by their names. Throughout the scriptures, as many of you know, numerous names or titles are ascribed to God. And this is especially true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament too, but it is especially true in the Old Testament. And this is important because in most of the ancient world, including the ancient Near East where almost all the events of the Bible take place except for some of Paul's missionary travels, names were more than simply words you used to differentiate one person from the next. He's a Joe, she's a Sarah. It was more important than that. Names were meant to communicate important truths about the person who those names were ascribed to. There was power in some ways in those names. And this is certainly true in Scripture with the various names that we see for God. These names are intended to reflect God's attributes and his character. And whenever we hear some of these names, the more we know about them, we're supposed to reflect on who God is and what he's done and how he's glorified in those things. Some of you will know that often new names for God are revealed in the Bible at particular moments in the history of redemption. Something big happens and there's a new name that, uh, that either God claims for himself or that's given to God. And, and it's a marker in that narrative of Scripture that something important's happening. And I know that many of you have noticed this before. So tonight, what I want to do, just very briefly over the next few minutes, is introduce you to some of the most important names of God that we find in the Scripture. And just consider together what those names teach us about God, about his character, and about his attributes. Now, we don't have time to, uh, to cover all the names. That would, that would take a couple of lessons to do that. 
Uh, but we are going to talk about what I think are some of the most important names. And then at the very end of the handout, uh, I recommend some books and some websites if you want to dig a little bit deeper. Now, don't turn there yet. Cheaters. I saw you doing it. You'll have time at the end, but, uh, but I, I do give you some suggested resources if you want to dig a little bit deeper on this topic. So let's begin by talking about the names of God in the Old Testament. And uh, the first thing that we want to say is that uh, this is a much bigger deal in the Old Testament even than it is in the New Testament. The different names of God and what they teach us about God's character and his attributes. And, and there's at least uh, a couple of different types of names of God. The first type would be names that God's people give to him. So these are not names that start with the Lord. These are names that the Lord's people ascribe to him at various times in Scripture. Let me share a few of them with you. Uh, By far, uh, the most common name for God in the Old Testament is Elohim. And many of you have heard this before. Uh, Well, it's actually, it's the second most common, but it's the the one that just translates to God or creator or judge. It's what it means. And and Elohim appears about 2,000 times in the Old Testament. In fact, uh, the very first words of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, use the word Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. So this is the opening name of God that we find in the Bible. Now, I want you to bear with me for a second. I I don't mean this in any sort of awkward or disrespectful way whenever I say this, but Elohim is kind of like the generic name of God in the Old Testament. Does that make sense? Like it's just kind of the default name. Again, God, creator, judge. Uh, So you might think of it as the, the default word for God in the Old Testament. That might be the reason it's the first one uh, that we see, and it's the second most common one. And so whenever they're talking about God in general, the, the creator and judge of all people, normally Elohim is that word that appears in the Old Testament. Another frequently used name is another one that you've heard of before probably, uh, Adonai. How many of you have heard Adonai before? Uh, Adonai means Lord or Master. And this word occurs 434 times in the Old Testament. So it's another very common name for God. Uh, I'll give you the first reference uh, to Adonai. It's in Genesis chapter 15, verse 2. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Adonai, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Now I gave you verse 1 and 2, one uses a different word, we'll come for that in a minute. But if we were looking at the Hebrew in Genesis fifteen two, it's Adonai. Lord or master that Abraham uses, or actually that Abram uses. Another name that we find, a little less common, but it appears more than a couple of times. We find it a couple of dozen times in the Old Testament. 
is the Hebrew El Elyon, Most High God. Now, you may not have heard El Elyon like you've probably heard Adonai and you've maybe heard Elohim, but El Elyon is really common. Uh, We find it most often in the Psalms. You think about the different hymns that are drawn from the Psalms that use that language of Most High God. But probably the most important place we find it in Scripture is in Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 19, the very first person in the Bible to use the name El Elyon, Most High God, was Melchizedek. And this is what he says. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, they knew how to name him in the Old Testament, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was... Priest, he was the priest of El Elyon, God Most High. And he blessed him, he's blessing Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram by El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be El Elyon, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. So this name appears again, but that first appearance is by Melchizedek. And I think that's really interesting because Melchizedek is not a relative of Abram. Remember, Abram is going to be uh, the seed of God's chosen people. They're going to come from his line. Melchizedek is a completely different character who Abraham crosses paths with. And yet, what Melchizedek wants to demonstrate to Abram is that they worship the same God. Melchizedek's not a pagan like these other kings and priests. He worships the Most High God. So he uses this word to make a connection so that Abram knows they mean the same people whenever they're talking about the deity. And of course, Melchizedek becomes important in the New Testament uh, in the book of Hebrews whenever we uh, see his name come up several instances as uh, his priesthood foreshadowing uh, Jesus's Uh, divine priesthood. Now, other names are used less frequently. These are the sort of names that just appear one or two or three times, but as a general rule, these lesser used names always pack a punch. There's something really important about them, and, and they're meant to catch our attention, and these are the ones that kind of appear at those key moments in the history of God's people. In Genesis 22, 14, Abram, Abraham calls God Yahweh-Jireh, or maybe if you're of a certain generation, you've heard it as Jehovah-Jireh. Does that sound familiar? So Yahweh-Jireh, the Lord will provide. And he gives him this name after God provided the sacrificial ram that took the place of Isaac. You remember the story? Abraham takes Isaac up on Mount Moriah. He's going to sacrifice him. God has commanded him to do that. And at the crucial hour, right as Abraham's about to do it, the ram appears in the thicket. And Abraham is provided with that ram who is the substitute for uh, Isaac, foreshadowing the sacrifice that Christ makes for his people. This is what it says in Genesis twenty-two fourteen. So Abraham called the name of that place... Yahweh Jireh, the Lord will provide. 
As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This is a name that's only used two or three times, but man, what an important moment in Old Testament history, right? The, the almost sacrifice of Isaac and God providing the sacrificial ram to take his place. In Exodus 17, 15, Moses calls God Yahweh Nissi or Jehovah Nissi, the Lord my banner. After he built an altar following Israel's defeat of the Amalekites. This is military imagery. So don't think uh, banner like uh, whenever we're going to do love tailors and we put banners up to advertise or, or whatever political banners. It's not that sort of thing. These are banners of victory proclaiming that, that one king and his army have conquered another king and his army. So this is what it says in Exodus seventeen fifteen. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Yahweh Nissi, the Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So this was part of uh, some of the very earliest stages of Israel's battle with some of the pagan peoples that were in the promised land. And that really becomes a major theme in Joshua. But we begin to see a little bit of that in Exodus, and this is one of those moments. And so this is saying that God is the great military victor who's going to conquer these rebellious peoples, and he's going to give this land to his people, Moses and the others. In Exodus fifteen twenty six, another name. Moses calls God Yahweh Rapha, the Lord that heals. And he does this following God's promise that obedience to the law will protect his people from disease. So this is in the middle of uh, some of what we've talked about even in the past few weeks as Moses is explaining and expounding on the Ten Commandments and, and telling all the people of Israel what that means. And then we get this promise uh, from Moses, really from God, but Moses is the one who is communicating this to the people in Exodus fifteen twenty six. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, talking about the plagues, for I am Yahweh Rapha. The Lord, your healer. That's what most of our English Bibles say. So he's saying, if you are displaying covenant obedience to me by obeying these commands, I will not do to you what I did to the Egyptians with those plagues that came. In Judges chapter 6, verse 24, this is one of my favorites. Gideon calls God Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is peace. Now, shalom is very common in Hebrew. And I know most of you have heard that phrase before. Our Jewish friends today uh, still use that term. And so it's very common. But, uh, but here it's tied to the name of God, Yahweh Shalom, the Lord is peace. And this is after the angel of the Lord promised that he would not kill Gideon. They meet face to face. Gideon is scared. This is what the angel says. 
Then Gideon, I'll read a little bit more for context. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it Yahweh Shalom, the Lord is peace. To this day, it still stands at Aphra, which belongs to the Abizarites. Peace be to you, shalom to you. He names him Yahweh Shalom, or Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. One of the very most familiar ones, I think, is Psalm 23.1. And we only find this in Psalm 23, but it's really important. David calls God Yahweh Ra'ah, the Lord my shepherd. Psalm 23, of course, is devoted to that entire theme. It opens in Psalm 23.1 with the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yahweh Ra'ah, I shall not want. So it's not a common name, but it's probably the most beloved psalm of, uh, of all the psalms. Maybe, arguably, uh, one of the most beloved verses in all of Scripture. And it uses one of these names of God to communicate something about who God is to his people. So you have all these different instances where a character uh, in the Old Testament gives a name to God or just kind of a background name of God that was common in the case of those first couple. But those are not the only examples that we see in Scripture. Sometimes it's not just a name of God that's there. Sometimes it's not an individual having a particular encounter with God and giving him a name. Sometimes God himself reveals a particular name to his people. And this is really important. In Genesis 17, verse 1, God names himself El Shaddai, God Almighty. Now, I know you've heard El Shaddai, right? You've at least heard that Amy Grant song. And she came to church here when she was in college for a year. Y'all knew that before I did, but I learned that a couple of years ago. So uh, El Shaddai means God Almighty. This is the name that God... Uh, is uh, gives himself this name right before he institutes circumcision as the sign of his covenant with Abraham. So you've got these three different passages in, in uh, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. All of those are about God's covenant with Abraham, and they kind of build on each other. So this is the, uh, the climactic of those passages, and this is what God says to Abraham in Genesis 17. Uh, verses 1 and 2, actually. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. One of the things I love about this name is after this initial introduction the vast majority of the time that El Shaddai is used in the Old Testament, it's used by Abraham or Jacob. Now, Isaac never uses it, but it's used by Abraham or Jacob. It clearly becomes a name for God that's very important to that very important family in the Old Testament. Does that make sense? This was their name 
that they used for God because of this moment. And so it appears other times as well, but it's especially tied to Abraham and his family as, as the name that they used for God, El Shaddai, God Almighty, because it reminds them of that special covenant that God has with Abraham and through Abraham with his descendants. But by far, some of you have been waiting on it. The most important name God reveals for himself in the Old Testament is found with the letters in English, Y-H-W-H. I've been pronouncing it as Yahweh. We'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, this name is most often translated in our English Bibles as Lord, and normally all capital letters in most English translations, which is a, a signal that this is the word that's being used. This name occurs over 6,500 times. So it's the most common name that we find, or the most frequently occurring name that we find uh, for God in the Old Testament. The key verse is Exodus 3.14. It's not the first occurrence, but it's when God reveals this name to Moses at the burning bush. And so this is going to be a very familiar passage. Uh, I'll read actually verses uh, 13 and 14. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am, in the Hebrew, Y-H-W-H. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, Y-H-W-H, I am, has sent me to you. This verse tells us so much about how our Jewish friends in the Old Covenant and later followers of Jesus in the New Covenant, how they understood this name and what this name meant. While it's just translated as Lord into English, it communicates more than just that title. You may remember Lord was tied to a couple of those other words that we have, those other names we have for God as well, but this one's special. It communicates God's eternality, his self-existence. Or maybe you might think about it this way, the impossibility of boxing God in in some way. That God is bigger and greater than we can imagine. All that is kind of wrapped up into this name. This was a name in a culture where knowing someone's name meant that you had some power over them. We even see this sometimes in the Gospels whenever the, the demons want to uh, say, I know who you are, and Jesus is saying, it's not your place to say my name. And this was very common in their culture that, that there was a currency to having someone's name. This was not a name that could be controlled. This was not a name that could be domesticated. This name communicated that God is all-powerful and that he has always been there and that he will always be there. And for the Jews, YHWH became the holiest of God's names. So much so, many of you have heard this before, they would not pronounce it out loud. They would pronounce El Shaddai, 
They would pronounce Elohim, Elion. There was no problem with Adonai. There was no problem with any of that. But they would not pronounce Y-H-W-H. Now, here's where it gets interesting. I have to ask this question. This is going to be nerdy, okay? Has anybody here ever had any sort of introduction to Hebrew before? Anybody at all? A couple of you are brave enough to raise your hands. So if you know anything about the Hebrew language, you probably... Well, there's two things that are interesting about it. One of it is that you read it backwards. You read it uh, right to left instead of left to right. Uh, I had a good friend in college in Hebrew. He was dyslexic. He struggled in every class. The first day of class, the professor said, now you read Hebrew right to left, and he said, yes! He still made a C, but he was very excited about that. So what, one thing is you read it what we would consider backwards, but here's the other thing. Uh, there were no written vowels in biblical Hebrew. They had vowels. You can't have words without vowels and consonants. But it was part of the Hebrew tradition that their original writings were all in uh, only consonants and the vowels were passed orally. So people knew how to pronounce words because the pronunciation was passed orally from generation to generation. But what do you do with a word that people don't pronounce because it's so holy? All you have is four consonants. What in English would be Y-H-W-H. For this reason, we don't know exactly how to pronounce that word. There's actually a lot of Hebrew words we're not 100% sure how to pronounce, but, uh, but there are still Jews in this world who have passed orally pronunciations. And so while some of that might have evolved over time as all languages change a little bit over time, you know, we, we tend to pronounce words very similar to how our Jewish friends pronounce words. But they don't pronounce this word. And so we're just not 100% sure what the pronunciation is. The most common English spellings and pronunciations are Jehovah, which is how the, uh, the translators of the King James Bible, uh, th- those were the consonants that they put in with it, and it came out as Jehovah. So that's why in a lot of our older Bibles and in a lot of our older hymns and older books, it uses the language of Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rapha, things like this. Uh, most scholars, both Hebrew scholars and Christian scholars, uh, since the early 20th century have said that Yahweh is probably a better translation. But we really don't know for sure. So if you're wondering, if you hear someone say Yahweh and you hear someone else say Jehovah, it's the same word. It's largely what generation they've come from or what Bible they're using or what book they've read that determines which pronunciation they use. Uh, But we we don't know how to pronounce that word. So I'm going to say Yahweh. That's the way that I've learned it uh, over the years, although I've sung the words Jehovah many times and and read those in various contexts. But we're, we're talking about the same name whenever we say Yahweh or Jehovah. And if uh, you come across Christians, uh, they're going to normally not hesitate to use those words. Uh, we're uh, 
under the new covenant, and, and it's simply a Jewish tradition not to pronounce that name. It's not commanded anywhere in the Bible. Uh, but uh, even today, among many of our Messianic brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, out of deference to that Jewish tradition, they still won't use uh, those names, even though they're followers of Jesus, uh, because that's part of their heritage. Uh, and even though it's not commanded in Scripture, that's something that's greatly valued in Jewish culture, and uh, our Messianic brothers and sisters uh, live between those worlds in some ways. And so it's uh, not very common to find a Jewish follower of Christ who would, uh, who would say Yahweh or Jehovah. Let's talk briefly about the names of God in the New Testament. It's not quite as significant in the Old Testament, but there's still some really interesting stuff that's here. So in the New Testament, the most common divine names or titles for God are uh, theos, which just means God. It's kind of the generic New Testament word for God. So sometimes, just like Elohim, I should have said this, sometimes Elohim is referring to God, sometimes in the plural it's referring to the gods. So again, it's like the generic word for God. Uh, it might be the one true God, or it might be the word we use for false gods. Same thing with theos in the New Testament. It's used to refer to God, or it's used to refer to the gods, or making a god out of something in your life. It's the more generic word. Uh, the other word is uh, kyrios, or kyrios, uh, which means Lord, always referring to the one true God. Both of these names are the Greek translations of the Hebrew terms. Does that make sense? So these are the Greek translations of the Hebrew terms. They're taken from the Greek version of the Old Testament. Some of you have heard of this before, the Septuagint. Uh, so the, uh, this was the version of the Old Testament that was used in the Greek-speaking world after the collapse of the kingdom of Israel. And so uh, this was the most common version of the Bible during Jesus' day. Uh, there's lots of evidence that the New Testament authors were reading the Old Testament in Greek just as much as they were in Hebrew. Sometimes they quote from the Greek version of the Old Testament in our New Testament. So theos is the Greek version of Elohim. And kyrios is the Greek version of Yahweh. So every time you would find in the Greek, every time you would find in the Hebrew Old Testament, Elohim in the Greek Old Testament, you get Theos. Every time in the Hebrew Old Testament, you find Yahweh. In the Greek Old Testament, you get Kyrios. So in the New Testament, written almost all in Greek, a little bit of Aramaic, they, use, they pull those names in, Theos and Yahweh. However, even though the names aren't new, they're just translations of those older names, the way the names are used is important because they often provide evidence of the fuller revelation of God's triune nature that we find in the New Testament. Now let me hit pause for just a minute. There are many things in the Bible that are already there in the Old Testament, but they are there as whispers or hints or basic concepts. And as we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, they're there with much greater clarity. And we, in fact, interpret those hints in the Old Testament based on the fuller revelation of the New Testament. And the most important example of that is the Trinity. 
There are hints of the Trinity in the Old Testament going all the way back to the opening verses of Genesis. But it's not nearly as clear as it is in the New Testament. And when we read the New Testament, we look at those hints in the Old Testament, we say, oh, I get it. This is the same God, the three-in-one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What I mean when I refer to these names shedding fuller light is they help us to understand that when we read the New Testament. So let me give you some examples. The name God is applied to Jesus several times in the New Testament. Not just hints that Jesus is divine or not just divine type things that Jesus does, but the title God is applied directly to Jesus about nine times in the New Testament. The most notable are found in John chapter 1 verse 1 and John chapter 20 verse 28. Let me read those for you. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We know from context that the Word is Jesus. Jesus was God. It's even more clear, though, in John chapter 20, verse 28. Let me read a few verses around this to give you context. This is going to be really familiar. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas says, My Lord and my God. He applies that title to Jesus. Sometimes, The word God, the name God, is also closely connected to the Holy Spirit. Let me give you two examples of this. In Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Peter says, if you lie to the Holy Spirit, you're lying to God. Or Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Some Bible translations say, God's Spirit referring to the Holy Spirit as God. So again, it's not that the names are new, but that word God is being used in new ways. It's not just referring to the one true God who has this covenant with Israel, but we're learning that this God is also Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? By the way the name is being used in the New Testament. Far more frequently, though, Lord is a title used by Jesus or ascribed to Jesus. There are gobs, oodles of examples of this 
But the most important, or at least the ones that I find the most interesting, are those seven I am statements that we find in the Gospel of John. You know what I'm talking about? All the different times that Jesus says things like, uh, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am uh, the good shepherd. Uh, When he uses those phrases, he's using kurios, which is the Greek word for Yahweh or Jehovah. This is why Jesus keeps getting in trouble whenever he says this. Because what he's saying is, uh, I am, when he says, I am the good shepherd, he's saying, Yahweh the good shepherd. And those unbelieving Jews are hearing heresy when Jesus is telling them who he really is. Does that make sense? So he applies that title to himself, saying, I am the Lord. I am your Lord. The same God that made that, who revealed that name with Moses, to Moses, and made that covenant on Mount Sinai and delivered you from the land of Egypt, that's me. It was a radical claim. And yet it's the truth that this Jesus is God. He's the Lord. He's Yahweh. We're almost at the end. A third name of God in the New Testament is Father. We love this name, don't we? And we find this commonly in the New Testament. There's there's two different words. The most common one is the Greek word for father, potter. I will, uh, I will tell my kids sometimes that I'm the potter familius. They have to do what, I'm, what I say. And they know potter familius means father of the family. So maybe you have little lines that you use to whip your kids into shape. I'll say, clean your room. Why? I'm the potter familius. It's the potter is just the generic P-A-T-E-R. It's sometimes pronounced pater, but I'm a redneck from South Georgia, so I've always pronounced it potter. Sounds like the potter in the clay, but it's not. It's P-A-T-E-R. But the most interesting one is actually the Aramaic word for father. Does anybody know what this word is? Abba. Abba is the Aramaic word for father. And, And it's not even the formal Aramaic word for father. It's the more familial word for father, which is why you'll often hear pastors and teachers say that when you hear Abba, you you think more a name like dad or daddy rather than father, which in the English language, father sounds more formal than daddy, right? But, uh, But we find those names applied to God. Though the word is common, what's important about that word father is the way that Jesus uses this word for God, symbolizing their unique relationship, that he is the son of the father, and he encourages us to do the same thing. What does he say in Matthew 6, 9 about the way that we should pray? Our father who art in heaven. He invites us to speak of God in the same way that he speaks of God. As a, as a heavenly father. By the way, can I, we've got four minutes. Can I chase a rabbit for 90 seconds? Sure. How many, how many of you have heard the idea 
that, uh, that, that God is kind of like the benevolent father of all people. You know, the old man in the sky, on, in the rocking chair, loving everybody just like they are. Or, or sometimes you'll, you'll hear things like God is the father of all humanity. I think I know what people mean when they say that, especially Christian people when they say that. I think what they mean is something like God created all of us and we're all accountable to him. And if I, I think I'm being charitable. If that's what they mean, I think they're right in what they mean. But Scripture never uses that name Father to refer to God as how he relates to all people. That's how he relates to his people. Those who've been adopted into his spiritual family by grace through faith. It is a privilege that we are called sons and daughters of God. He does love us even when we're lost. We are accountable to him even in our unbelief. He gives all kinds of good gifts to us, even when we're not following him. But he's not our heavenly father till we've trusted in Jesus Christ alone as our Lord and Savior. And we've been adopted into his family. So don't, don't lose sight of how precious that name is, Father. It's a great privilege given to those who have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back, that we can call the God of all creation our Father, just like Jesus does. One final thought on the New Testament. This is just a freebie, a bonus, if you will. The name Jesus in Hebrew, uh, Yeshua, or normally Joshua in our English Bibles, means Yahweh saves. And so even that name of Jesus, now that was a common name in Hebrew families and Jewish families, so he's not the only person in the Bible who has that. Joshua, who fought the battle of Jericho, has the same name as Jesus of Nazareth. But he's Jesus, and even when we hear that name, his very name is a reminder that Yahweh saves his people. And so even Jesus' name is special. It's, it's not unique to him, but as believers, when we read the name of Jesus, when we pray to Jesus, whenever we offer a prayer in Jesus' name, whenever we decide to follow Jesus, we're acknowledging that Yahweh alone is the one who saves, which is what his name proclaims. So it should come as no surprise in closing that both Jews and Christians have long reflected on God's name for devotional purposes. I'm sure in a room this size or with a crowd this size, some of you at one time or another have read a book about the names of God or have uh, done some study of the names of God. There's a long history of that. And I just want to close by recommending some devotional books and some helpful websites so for those of you who are interested in reading a book on this topic, uh, K. Arthur's Lord, I Want to Know You is all about knowing God by learning about these names and what they mean. Uh, Tony Evans, one of my favorite preachers, uh, The Power of God's Names, uh, same idea there. Uh, my colleague at North Greenville, uh, Ken Hemphill, uh, has a wonderful little book uh, on the names of God. And so all of these are meant to help us learn about God's names and learn about his character and his mighty acts through that. And then for those of you who are internet savvy, uh, I just give you their uh, 
a great short article that I was looking at this past week on this topic by Allison Holland. Uh, Adrian Rogers has a whole website uh, as part of Love Worth Finding Ministries about the names of God, and you click on the different names, and it gives you all kinds of interesting information. And then uh, my friend Luke Stamps, uh, who teaches at Anderson University uh, down the road, uh, has a great article just from a couple of years ago on the names and titles of Jesus in particular, and I provide you with uh, a link to that. But uh, here's the thing to remember. God's name tells us about God's character and God's attributes. So the reason we don't take the Lord's name in vain is because that name says a whole lot more than just who he is. It's who he is. It's what he's done. And the more we know about the names of God in Scripture the better we're able to pray to him and to worship him and even to tell other people about him. So let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is by grace to call you our Heavenly Father. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your scripture tells us so much more about who you are and what you've done, then, then sometimes we even realize. And, and we're so thankful for the riches that we find in Scripture when it comes to your name. And we pray, Father, that as we think about these different names and the way that they're used in the Bible, that it would cause us to grow in our love for you, that it would cause us to grow in our love for other people. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you would be working through this sort of knowledge to mold and make us into the men and women that you would have us to be. Father, we thank you for everything that is communicated by these names. We glorify you for this. And we pray these things in the strong name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Yahweh saves. Amen. Y'all have a great week.